Attributes of God, part five, holiness and righteousness. From our handout, God's holiness is his inherent and absolute greatness in which he perfectly he's perfectly distinct above everything outside himself and completely separate from sin. His holiness is not simply an act of his will, but is in keeping with his other attributes. The scriptures describe two aspects of God's holiness, his majestic holiness and his ethical or you call it moral holiness. Now, majestic holiness speaks to the fact of of God's uh, holiness that that, uh, qualifies all of his attributes, all of which are perfect and holy. God is majestically unique, which is asserted in both Old and New Testaments. And his moral holiness speaks of his total separation from sin. As a matter of fact, if you're familiar with in, in the, the Greek New Testament, the word like Holy Spirit, the word holy is hagios, which actually means separate. Okay. So, and sometimes it's actually translated that way, depending on the context. Now, <clears throat> first of all, there's so many places we can go to. We're going to have to really pick and choose here. Let's start with the first point, that God hates sin. Let's look at, now let's look at Genesis. Go back to the beginning. Look at Genesis 6, 5 through 9. Then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth. Now this is around the time of Noah, the flood. And every intent of thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Right there you have a very, there's a good description of what theologians call the depravity of man. That um, every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. When you compare man's thinking process to God's holiness, that applies to every one of us when we were in our unsaved condition. In our regenerated state, that I've hoped has come down a whole lot. <laughs> that does come down a whole lot. We still sin, and we still think evil. Anything that is not righteous is evil. There's no really no middle ground. So we keep that in mind. Now, <clears throat> back in in, Gen- in back in chapter five, verse uh, twenty-one to twenty-four, just to set set a little bit set it up a little bit here, get a context. And Enoch lived 65 years and became the father of Methuselah. Then Enoch walked with God 300 years, and after he became the father of Methuselah, he had other sons and daughters. So all the days of Enoch were 365 years. And Enoch walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. And the reason I'm I'm bringing that up is because there you have, until you get to Noah, that's the last righteous man spoken of. Everything else just starts going down. Matter of fact, interesting fact, Methuselah, if you run the numbers, Methuselah died. He was the the oldest man in Scripture. He died the year of the flood. And it doesn't say whether he died of natural causes or not. So we, not to judge, (laughs) we just don't know. But I just find that an interesting fact. So... <clears throat> and we know from uh, just looking back at the flood and looking back to it at previous lessons of uh, attributes of God, one of the attributes of God is long-suffering. And remember Peter described Noah building the ark all those years, you know, over a century in putting that ark together, drawing a lot of attention. 
warning them. What did Peter call Moses a, or Noah? A preacher of righteousness. Okay. Speaking of Moses, let's look at Exodus 32. Exodus 32. <clears throat> and now we get into God's chosen people. 32, uh, <clears throat> Exodus 32, 1 to 10. I'm not going to read it all, but uh, look at verse 1. It says, Now when the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people assembled about Aaron and said to him, Come make us a, a God, small g, who will go before us, as for this Moses, the man who brought us up from the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. And then Aaron, you know, you know what it doesn't say? It doesn't give any conversation coming out of Aaron's mouth about, well, let's wait a minute. Let's get the next, very next verse. And Aaron said to them, tear off gold rings, which are in your ears and your wives, and your sons and daughters, and bring them to me. No pause, no nothing that we know of. You know, he was supposedly the second in command. And look, and look at this. You know, and you drop down to verse seven. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, go down at once for your people whom you whom you brought out of the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. They have quickly turned aside from the way which I commanded them. They have made for themselves a molten calf and have worshipped it and have sacrificed to it and said, this is your God. O Israel, who brought you out from the land of Egypt. You talk about the ultimate blasphemy. That's it. A golden calf and call that. God, who was introduced when, remember, go way back to chapter three, you know, who shall I say sent me? I am that I am. And they're, I mean, every, it always astounds me. And here's a good illustration of a couple of things. It's hard not to get ahead of myself. But when you, you look at this and look at everything this group of people witnessed, the ten plagues, the pillars of fire and smoke protecting them, the crossing of the Red Sea on dry land. They, they get out to here, and what do they do? Moses, Moses leaves for a couple of days, and he's going to and they forget everything. They forget everything. Well, why they forget everything? Because the bulk of this population were not true believers. Well, how can you say that? Well, I can say that because Jude and Second Peter said that they use this generation as an example of an apostate people. They knew the truth and yet rejected it. And you follow them through the wilderness for 40 years. It's one, one crab apple complaint after another, after another, after another, after another. You want to learn about the long suffering of God? Just read the Old Testament. And then, too, another thing you can do, we could take an honest look at ourselves and see how patient he is as well. You know. But I'll tell you, again, and people want to, re you know, half of, over half of Christianity wants to reject this, but apart from the grace of God in our lives, we would be in the same boat. We would be in the same boat. It's the re You know what comes first in the Orda Saluda? You know that term. <laughs> The order saluta, the order of salvation. You know what comes first, even before faith? Regeneration. The act of the Holy Spirit. If those eyes aren't opened, you won't see. It's that simple. And the scripture is very clear about that. Remember John chapter 3, the conversation with Nicodemus. You must be born again. He goes, and basically, Nicodemus says, what are you talking about? 
I don't get what you're saying. Well, of course you don't get it because it's like the Holy Spirit. It wins. You don't know where it's like the wind. You don't know where that comes from. You don't know where it's going, but it does its work. It has its effect and moves on. And see, that's salvation. That's the regeneration of the Spirit. It's a perfect, but you can see it all through. People that, what more evidence could this group have? And that's what astounds me today where people, you know, just, just throw some, if we just can throw some more miracles out there, we would get them to believe. That's why we think miracles are st- still are, is prolific today. I, I, def- I, I challenge that just from, let me see some. Okay. But just like, I don't care if you had a, a, a tidal wave of miracles. If you don't have the faith, you'll be just like this bunch in the wilderness. It, it's human eyesight is not ever going to save anybody. It just doesn't work. And it's just, you know, it's just kind of, it's maddening sometimes to hear folks in the church just got chasing one little thing after another, after another. And it's right here. The grace of God. Read the script. That's why I give them the word. Don't give them a, a line of baloney. Give them the word. And verse 10, G, uh, the Lord speaking to Moses, now then let me alone that my anger may burn against them, that I may destroy them. And I will make you. That's talking to Moses, a great nation. And then Moses, being a godly man that he is, and, I, and, and really does know God. Uh, we, that, Moses would be a beautiful study all by himself. Really, he would. The life of Moses would be a multi-week study. This man was quite something. But let's go to verse 19 and 20 of, of 32. We just, we just don't have that much time. We, we didn't even before the prayer meeting. <laughs> but... <laughs> But 19 and 20, and here you can see Moses discussed with it. And it came about as soon as Moses came near the camp that he saw the calf and the dancing. Okay, and there was just, a, I don't even want to describe what was going on. But, and Moses' anger, they went totally pagan. Okay, just I'll just put it that, they went totally pagan. That's what the dancing was all about. Moses' anger burned, and he threw the tablets from his hands and shattered them at the foot of the mountain. Um, yeah, he had a he had a bit of a temper, um, and oh yeah, well this gets better. And he took uh, this the, not verse uh, nineteen. Yeah, probably shouldn't have done that. Verse twenty, I kind of like. And he took the calf which they had made and and burned it with fire and ground it to powder, scattered over the surface of the water, and made the sons of Israel drink it. And they listened to him. They knew Moses. They knew the kind of power he had by way of God. They weren't going to mess with Moses. When he says, here, you drink it, they drank it. They drank it. And just, man, it's just amazing. It's just amazing. But I'll tell you, the, the, the disgust and, you know, we, we should have that same feeling about stuff like this, um, especially when we see it in ourselves. Like, oh. You know, that's again, that to me, that that's one of the greatest signs of a true believer is that when a true believer sins, that believer does not like it, cannot live with that, will not tolerate that. Well, sooner or later has to abandon that. Because again, um, <clears throat> when you read like in First Corinthians 6 and other places where they make lists of sins, which are, of course, not an exhaustive list at all, or Romans 1. 18 to 32, you have sins listed. Uh, they're not talking about a once in a while m- flub. 
They're talking about lifestyles, people that just stay in sin and never seem to break the habit. Well, there's a reason for that. You're not saved. That's the reason. That's the reason. And again, that's part of the gospel is letting people know that, you know, if they can tolerate sin, how do, where'd the, where'd the indwelling Holy Spirit go? The indwelling Holy Spirit's not going to tolerate sin. See what I mean? We can quench the Holy Spirit. What's that? It should. You can't, you can't deal with it. And see, that's me. I mean, a a believer obviously can quench the Holy Spirit for a while or there wouldn't be a command against it. (laughs) But that is not going to be a lifelong endeavor. (laughs) That that isn't going to last forever. That's not a, a lifelong situation to a real believer. Now, a whole lot of scriptures here that talk about uh, uh, the holiness of God spoken of in scripture. I think we know them. Um, see, we're in, we're in Exodus. Let's look at Exodus 3, 1 to 6. We'll spend a little time in Exodus, then we'll move on to some others. But a lot of these are very repetitious. But the, when you get to the holiness of God... I mean, that's, that's kind of like the crown jewel of all his attributes. The holiness kind of overshadows everything. You know, it's just, they're all important. I mean, I don't want to say, I don't want to categorize them. This one's the most, and, that's an, and this is the least. No, they're all extremely important. But the holiness aspect kind of overshadows everything. You know, because that's what really sets him apart. And by the way, that is one of those attributes that is a communicable attribute. We can also be holy, not to his standard yet, but one day when we are perfected, believe it or not. But that's, and that's why we're commanded, you know, you be holy as what? He is holy, right? Again, if it, if we couldn't do it, he wouldn't ask it. But in uh, Exodus 3, 1, now Moses was passing, was uh, pasturing the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law. The, the priest of Midian, and he led the flock to the west side of the wilderness and, and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. The angel of the Lord appeared to him in a blazing fire from the midst of a bush, and he looked, and behold, the, the bush was burning with fire, yet the bush was not consumed. So Moses said, I must turn aside and go, go see this marvelous sight, why the bush is not burned up. When the Lord saw that he turned aside to look, God called to him from the midst of the bush and said, Moses, Moses. And he said, Here I am. Then he said, do not come near here. Remove your sandals from your feet for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. He said also, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. Then Moses hid his face for he was afraid to look at God. Again, there's that majestic holiness that we just was in our early definition. They just why is the ground holy? Because God is there. No other reason. Otherwise, it's just dirt. But it was holy because the presence of God was there. That's what made it holy. That's why when we, remember we went through those uh, chapters in Revelation, the temple up in heaven, the holy temple was called. Why was the holy temple? Because the presence of God was there. Okay, so wherever the presence of God is, that's holy. That is holy. We are... Our bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit. How should we keep our temples holy? Holy. Okay? Holy. 
And that was Paul's whole point. So don't you know your body's your temple of the Holy Spirit? That was the whole point. You know, um, with the Holy Spirit within us, we should be holy. We should live up to what's inside us, what indwells us. Okay. And also, God, uh, moving down to the next larger point, God's holiness is, is manifested at the cross. I mean, just for the fact of what had to take place there. Like, we see it in the Psalm 22. We'll, we'll pass through that. We're not going to read it all. We're, I think all of us, we, we've been there enough in our in past lessons and messages that um, we're familiar with Psalm 22. Um, <clears throat> Psalm 22, I mean, really the whole thing. But um, where, where the father actually estranged himself from the son. Um, verse 1, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Far from my deliverance are the words of my groaning. If you ever wondered what the Lord might have been thinking when he's on the cross, read Psalm 22. You want to know what he was thinking? Read Psalm 22. I guarantee you, you know, yeah, it was written by David. But when you read what's going on here, I can't find anything in his life that describes this. <laughs> I, I really can't. Um, he says, verse 2, oh, my God, I cry by day, but you, you do not answer. You see that loneliness, that estrangement there? And by night, but I have no rest. Yet you are holy. And that's the whole point. Remember what was going on with Jesus? And I have that written in our, in our text here. He, he, that's the Father. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Oh yes, God was there, but God was not there as the loving Father. God was there as the righteous judge. He was there at Calvary. Oh, he was there, but he was there as judge. He was there as judge, judging our sin. Judging our sin. Okay. Verse three says, "Yet you are holy, and you have enth you are enthroned upon the praise of Israel." And, and reason, in you, our fathers trusted. They trusted, and you did deliver them. To you, they cried out and were delivered. In you, they trusted and were not disappointed. I mean, he says, "But I am a worm and not a man, a reproach of men, despised by the people." All who see me sneer at me. They separate the lip. They wag their heads saying, commit yourself to him, but Lord, let him deliver him. Let him rescue him because he delights in him. It goes on and on. I mean, that just reads like Matthew 27. I mean, you know, uh, it's just there. Um, and so we'll just move on from that. And he, he prays and he just, you can hear the prayer. He goes on like, you know, that praying for that comfort that he knows is there, but it's not there now. And, but if you read through it, you will read through and you can see where he comes out the other side of this. And you can read where he actually dies. And you can read where he actually comes back to life again. The way the thing, Psalm 22 is a magnificent, magnificent psalm. Okay, moving on. Righteousness. We've got about a whole 10, 12 minutes to do it. We'll just... <clears throat> Righteousness now is the, is the manifestation of God's holiness. Let's face it. A holy God is going to be righteous. He's going to do things righteously. All right. And as his holy people, we are expected to do things righteously and with, from right from a position of righteousness. We won't look these all these verses up, but some of them we've seen before, actually. 
where it says he loves righteousness, Psalm 11 and, and Psalm 19, those two passages. Uh, Psalm 11, 7, Psalm 19, 8, and 9. It also says he cannot lie, Titus 1, 2. We've, we read that in the Old Testament as well. And bless him for this. And this goes with his long suffering and his grace and mercy and all those other attributes we've already seen. He will keep all of his promises. Because, why? Because a righteous God will not lie. And if he makes a promise, he will keep it. If we make promises, we should keep them. And the scripture says, be careful about vowing and making promises. Because if you make promises, you should keep them. So be careful. Don't be willy-nilly about such things. You know? And then, <clears throat> then secondly, yeah, well, the divine, I didn't finish the divine attribute in two ways. First, God always acts in harmony with his own holy nature. And then God deals with mankind in righteousness and true justice in punishment and reward on both sides of that deal. You know, he's our righteous God, benevolent and loving. He's also the righteous judge of the universe. Okay? Um, matter of fact, on our behalf, on Calvary, as we read in Psalm 22, Matthew 27, and other places, um, he was the righteous judge at that point in time, and that's where he judged our sin. Remember, Christ took our sin. And when we get into the doctrine of salvation, things like that coming up, we're going to see that basically, essentially, our sin was imputed to him. He became it. He took it. And then his righteousness, he imputed to us. That's hard to grasp. That's hard to grasp. That's exactly what happened. And that's why when God sees us, he does not see our sin. What does he see? He sees Christ's imputed righteousness in us. And again, nothing that we got any bragging, bragging rights about. It's all him. It's all him. 100%. All him. Imputed. That's one of those subjects I can't wait to get to. But anyway, but I'm going to have to. All right. Secondly, God deals with mankind in righteousness and true justice in both punishment and reward. Psalm 58. You might still be sitting there in 22. Psalm 58. Again, the, uh, <clears throat> this is the Psalm of David, the <clears throat> miktam of David. Do you indeed speak righteousness, O gods, small g? Do you judge uprightly, O sons of men? The obvious answer to that question is no. <laughs> no, oh, see, verse 2, no, in heart you work unrighteousness. On earth you weigh out the violence of your hands. The wicked are estranged from the womb. Th those who speak lies go astray from birth. They have, they have venom <clears throat> like the venom of a serpent, like, the, like, the, like a deaf cobra that stops up the ear so that it does not hear the voice of the charmers or skillful cha caster of spells. Oh, go oh, God, here's the real God, shatter their teeth in their mouth. Whoa, that's... That's, that's uh, pretty hard. This is what they call those imprecatory songs. Oh, oh, man, it's hard not to like them. You know, in these days. Anyway. <laughs> Break out the fangs of the young lions, O Lord. Let them, let them flow away like water that runs off. When he aims his arrows, let them be as headless shafts. Let them be as a snail which melts away and goes along. In other words, let all these false people not be heard. Make them fail. And, you know, that's a legitimate prayer. 
my I, I, I pray all false teachers would fail in their endeavors, would fail at every effort, pray for their salvation. But if they're going to play that, if they're going to false teachers, I wish them total failure in their false teaching. I wish them total failure. So we'll move on from that. I'd get off the soapbox, but I don't have one. Now, which passage do I take? Verse 8. Let him be as a snail which melts away and it goes along like a miscarriage of a woman which never sees the sun. That's pretty uh, pretty vivid uh, language. I mean, you, you read Psalm 58, and by the time you get through the end of this thing, if you're not sure what's being talked about, read it again. <laughs> well, that's, you know, maybe you ask some of the homeschoolers to give you, let you sit in on the reading comprehension class. <laughs> it's pretty obvious what's going on here. It's pretty obvious. <clears throat> okay. Jonah 7, 9. <clears throat> Know therefore that the Lord your God, he is God, the faithful God, who keeps his covenant and his loving kindness to a thousand thousands of generations with those who love him and keep his commands. Hey, that's us, folks. You know, anybody that's a true believer, he's going to stay true to us. I think we should try to return the favor as much as possible. But he will stay faithful to us. Verse 10, but repays those who hate him to their faces to destroy them. He will not delay with him who hates him. He will repay him to his face. Therefore, you shall keep the commandment and the statutes and the judgments which I have commanded you today to do them. And it just keeps going on. Uh, and, and we can look at Daniel 12. Daniel 12, 1 to 3. Now at that time, that's the end time, that Michael, the great prince, who stands guard over the sons of your people, will rise, will arise, and there will be a time of distress such as never occurred since there was a nation until that time. That at that time, your people, everyone who was found written in the book, will be rescued. That's talking about Israel's resurrection. And many of those who sleep in the dust of the ground will awake, these to everlasting life, the others to disgrace and everlasting contempt. And this is talking about the people, the nation of Israel. You know, within Israel, just like within the Gentile nations, you got the saints and the ain'ts. They're all there. They're all there. And verse 3, and those who have insight will shine brightly like the brightness in the expanse of heaven. And those who lead the many to righteousness, those Old Testament type evangelists, Jewish evangelists, to be like stars forever and ever. And so there you see you have judgment for the righteous and the unrighteous, and you have rewards for the righteous, just like it teaches in the New Testament, right? They'll shine like the sun. It's the New Testament's put this way, you know, you'll be rewarded gold, silver, precious stones, you know. So let's, uh, let's close in a word of prayer. Father God, we thank you, Lord, for this time together. Uh, <clears throat> even though we had to abridge it a little bit, that's okay. That prayer time was, and discussion is worth it. We need that kind of fellowship. And Lord, as we look ahead, we, um, <clears throat> again, ask that you give us a great time of fellowship during the service and, and also, too, when, when we get together as a family at, a, at our church barbecue today. Lord, I'm, I'm looking forward to that, and may you be praised with it all. In Jesus' name, amen.